you would open your Bibles to the very first psalm in the Psalms, Psalm chapter 1. If you open right towards the middle of your Bible, you'll more than likely find the general area. If you're using a Bible provided for you, we're going to be on page 448, right in the middle of your Bible. And if you could also uh, put your finger uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to Um, be over in Deuteronomy for a few moments. That's towards the beginning of your Bible, page 151, if you are using uh, a Bible provided for you. Uh, We are starting a new summer series beginning today. It's entitled, My Heart Looks to You. And uh, in this series, this summer series, we're going to be observing many psalms over the next few months that are going to remind us of our need for God, remind us of His faithfulness. And we're going to see how these psalms ultimately point us to the fullest expression of God's faithfulness, the giving of His Son, Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to begin our journey by looking at Psalm chapter 1. Now today is uh, the first Sunday of June, so it's June, what is it? June 4th. Um, So we're excited about the summer, we're excited about summer plans. Um, In fact, a year ago today, uh, Tim and I would would have been in Ethiopia. So uh, uh, we keep getting these reminders on our phones of uh, pictures and things from Ethiopia. So uh, it's it's neat to think about, Uh, a year ago today... Uh, But we're not a a year ago from, we're not in the past, we're in the present. So we are looking at this summer, Psalm chapter 1. And I don't know about you, but I desire, and I think all of us desire, to live a fruitful, vibrant, full, happy, blessed life. In fact, that's kind of the the human appeal, right? In fact, every day we see commercials that in one way, shape, or form try to tell us that their product is one of the ways to achieve a full, blessed life. That if you just had that product, life would be better. Life would be lived in a more full sense. So there's ventures, there's hobbies, there's activities that demand and occupy our time that seem to promise abundant life and maybe even momentarily feel like they're living up to their promises. We think about things like vacations, right? Summertime. Just being able to get away on that vacation, and if you can just make it till the end of June or July or August and get away, man, how much better life is going to be. You walk into um, a traveler's traveler's, uh, office, or you go into AAA in in Wellsboro, and you see the, the travel area, and you can see all these pamphlets and and all of these vacations that you could take. You see commercials and you see ads for exercise programs and exercise equipment that, man, if you could just get in better shape, life would be more abundant. On the flip side of that, you see commercials for really good food. You think, man, if I could eat that, it would be a fulfilled day. Then you see commercials for the new vehicles that are coming out, the new trucks or, or sports cars. And it's like, man, if I, if I just had that or if I just had a newer car or one that wasn't always in, the, uh, in the, the, the repair garage more than it's in my garage, how much better life would be? One, that, one commercial that I've been noticing more often uh, recently is, um, is medicine commercials. Have you ever noticed how happy everybody is in those medicine commercials? I was telling Rachel, I was like, 
Why do you think they always have like these, you know, they're walking on the beach, talking, you know, they're having a great time. It's like if you take this medicine, life can get back or be this good. Forget about the, all the litany of side effects that are really quickly talked about at the end. But every day we are given commercials, whether that's literal commercials or whether that are little blurps of commercials, whether that's on social media or whether that's in our own minds of how life could be better, how it could be more abundant. Yet Scripture loudly proclaims to us that there is only one way to experience the fullness of life that God offers. And this is the pathway through Jesus Christ. In fact, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This world will offer us many pathways and shortcuts to, to experience the fullness of life. But the problem is, is none of them work. So this morning, as we open up this summer series here, we're going to look at Psalm 1, and I'm entitling today's message, Walking in the Way of the Blessed. And from Psalm 1, we are going to look at three aspects of what it means to walk in the way of the blessed man, the blessed woman. We're going to see this morning, just really quickly, the blessed man's allegiance, the blessed man's security, and the blessed man's reward. And here is the main theme that we see in Psalm 1. It is this. The blessed man or the blessed woman is the one who follows God from the heart. The blessed person is the one who follows God from the heart. Another way of saying that is from our entire inner being. Mind, emotions, and will. And we're going to see that from Psalm 1 today. Would you join me as I pray today? Father, would you minister your word into the depths of our hearts, into the depths of our minds? Father, would your spirit, through the proclamation of your word, go out and bear fruit? Lord, I pray that we would desire to be the blessed individuals, not blessed in a worldly sense, in a cultural sense, but Lord, truly blessed in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In verses 1 and 2, and this psalm is, is nicely divided into three sections, or uh, as so, the, the book of Psalms, as you know, is poetry, Hebrew poetry. It doesn't rhyme like English poetry, but it is set out in three different stanzas. Stanza 1 is verses 1 and 2. Stanza 2 is verses 3 and 4 of this poem. And then stanza 3, we find verses 5 and 6. The first stanza talks about the blessed man's allegiance. Our allegiance falls somewhere, right? It's one thing or another. And in verse 1, we see a contrast of two people. Verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, many of us are very familiar with this verse and this psalm. But I want us to take a look here into the contrast of these two people that are displayed. The first person we see is the blessed man. If you're looking at the New Testament, the blessed man is also described in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus gives what is known as the Beatitudes. Blessed is the one. 
There's a wide range of meanings for this word that's used, translated from the Hebrew, blessed or blessed. It can have the idea of to be happy, to be joyful, to be prosperous. Yet, as as theologians and commentators commonly note, there is no one word that can fully describe this term, blessed. To be blessed, does it mean to be happy or to be joyful or to be prosperous? Yes, it does, but it means so much more than that. In fact, this word refers to a whole life flourishing. It refers to a total sense of well-being. A life that is established, that is fixed, and that is flourishing. The reason that this individual can be blessed, the reason reason that we can be blessed is because it comes from the Lord. As we're going to see in our psalm, it can come from nothing else. In fact, this word, as we're going to see from the psalms that we are going to look at this summer, to be blessed does not mean to be exempt from hardship and difficulty. Because we're going to see throughout the Psalms that, that David, the, author of the, uh, the various authors of these Psalms, and uh, the Psalms describe God's people in general to be going through very specific and deep difficulties. In fact, Psalm 1 and 2 are introductory Psalms into the, into the entire Psalm book. Uh, many people uh, have the idea that the Psalms are just kind of, just kind of a random, you know, random Psalms that, that are thrown together in the Psalms. But, but you're going to see, and we don't have a lot of time to talk about this in our series, the Psalms are very strategically put together. The Psalms are divided into five specific books. Psalm 1 and 2 is the introduction to these five collections of Hebrew poetry. Verse 1 starts out talking about this blessed man. Psalm 2 ends talking about those who are blessed. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you are seeking refuge, if you are seeking hope, if you are seeking for a fuller life outside of God and God Himself, this psalm is not going to describe you. There's a wide range of meanings for this uh, word blessed, but there's also a wide range of people that are referred to here. In verse 1, the blessed is an individual, the blessed man. And then in verse 5, and we're going to tie this together at the end, we see not simply one person, we see a congregation of people in verse 5. The congregation of the righteous. You see, the Psalms were meant for the Israelites. They pointed to God's king following God's law and then God's people following God's law and the nation would be blessed. You see, we are to be individuals that are following God, and we are also to be a people together that are following Him. We're going to see how this ultimately points us to Jesus Christ, and that we are too are blessed because of Him. So the first person that we see in this psalm is the blessed man. And looking at the the bookends of Psalm 1 and 2, the blessed are those who are following after God, taking refuge in Him. There's a second category of people, however, in this psalm, and that is the ungodly. The ungodly are described in three ways, and they are contrasted with this person who is blessed. 
Verse 1, first of all, talks about the ungodly as being wicked. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. This word is in direct contrast to blessed. In fact, one individual says this. This term wicked, it denotes the negative behavior of evil thoughts, words, and deeds. A behavior not only contrary to God's character, but also hostile to the community, and which at the same time betrays the inner disharmony and unrest of a man. You see, folks, those who are living in rebellion against God, they are not simply outwardly seeking their own pleasures and seeking to live in defiance of God. No, there is something that is even uh, a louder voice that is speaking out, and that, that is the inner disharmony and unrest of the heart, the human heart. You see, we need to look past the outward actions of individuals and think what is going on in that person's heart. Because these rebellious actions are stemming from something deeper. The ungodly are described as wicked. Wicked in thought, wicked in action, wicked in words. The ungodly are also described in a general sense, the verse 1 shows us, as sinners. Literally, those who miss the mark. And then we see thirdly, they are described as scoffers. Those who are actively opposed to God and His ways. Those who are verbally defiant against God and His ways. Did you know that it's noteworthy to note that these three terms, wicked, sinners, and scoffers, did you know that they constitute the three different classes of fool in the book of Proverbs? This is the foolish person. It's the person of Psalm 14 when it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So for the Christian... To be caught up in what we see in verse 1 is utterly contrary to who God has called that Christian to be. To be as one who rejects the very existence of God. You see, the blessed man's allegiance is to God and God alone. The blessed man's allegiance Chapter 2, verse 12, is the one who takes refuge in Him. But not only do we see a contrast of two people, I want to highlight for you in this psalm a contrast of two paths. Two paths to go down. Which path are we going to choose? The first path, in verse 1, is the path of the ungodly. There's three characteristics of this path. And as has been rightly noted, by, uh, and you've probably heard, there's sort of a progression in this path. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. This walking, this daily behavior, this pathway of life, it is not in association with the counsel of the wicked you may say, Pastor Adam, what does it mean to, to walk in the counsel of the wicked? Another way you could translate this is, blessed is the man who does not live according to the advice of the wicked. That word counsel has the idea of advice. In fact, Job 21, verse 16, he uses this word. He says, the counsel or the advice of the wicked is far from me. In Psalm 33, 11, by contrast, it says, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. Folks, if we are going to be anchored in our allegiance to God and God alone, 
We cannot be giving heed to the advice, to the counsel of the wicked. In fact, did you know that this word counsel is the same exact word in chapter 2, verse 1, plot? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot or counsel together in vain? What are they counseling about? How to set themselves up against the Lord Almighty and His anointed. Folks, this is counsel that is clearly contrary to God and His Word. And we are getting bombarded with this counsel each and every day. Through the individuals we talk to, through the culture that we live in, and the things that are on TV, and the lyrics of pop music. We are bombarded with the counsel of the wicked each and every day. And when we start to take note and to grab those things and to anchor them in our hearts, we see the next phrase, nor stands in the way of sinners. This has the idea of one who is more now established in the way of the ungodly. This person has gone from listening to counsel to actively participating in wrongdoing. Kids, that could be as simple as in school. You know, why do you, why do you, why do you listen to your parents? Man, I do this, or I sneak around and do this, and, and, and that counsel starts to get in your mind, and then you think, boy, yeah, what would it be? Why do, why do my parents have to tell me that stuff? Maybe I can do my own thing. Or, you know, you look around, and, and, and as the Psalms say, why do the wicked seem to prosper? You know, maybe I should start following the desires of the flesh. Maybe that will give me more gratification and an easier life. And before you know it, you go from pondering the counsel of the wicked to actively participating in wrongdoing. And then the third progression, it says, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Here the picture is one who is fully established in outward and inner rebellion against God. But folks, this is an empty way. You know the next time that word sits is used in the Psalms? It's chapter 2, verse 4. He who sits, speaking of God in the heavens, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. To go against God is futile. The only way to be established, which this word sits, it means to dwell, to occupy, to inhabit. The only way to dwell and, and, being a sta- and, and to inhabit steadfastness to be established is to follow God. But verse 2 then shows us a different way. The path of the blessed. What does the path of the blessed look like? Verse 2 says, but, here's a contrast, His, not the wicked, not the sinners, not the scoffers, but the blessed man, His delight is in the law of the Lord. You see, the the path of the blessed, it is a heart of delight. There's a contrast of desires here. A contrast of desires that I want to feed my flesh, I want to go my own way, I want to be my own savior, I want to be my own captain, I I want to, to, to do what makes sense to me. A contrast of those desires to one who delights in the law of the Lord. Same description as chapter 2, verse 12. One who takes refuge in Him. So we have a contrast of ways, the way of the wicked versus the law of the Lord. 
Now, whenever you see the word law, um, we, we often come up with negative connotations to that. Law. Law means bad. Law means restricting. Law means I can't do what I want to do. But listen, that's only the case when our hearts are geared after the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers. The law of the Lord is good. The law of the Lord, as the Psalms say, Psalm 119, it's more to be desired than gold. It is sweeter than a honeycomb. Now in the context of Psalm 1, this is talking about the first five books of the Old Testament, most specifically the Torah, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In those five books, there is much more than the thou shalt not, the Ten Commandments. Before you ever get to the Ten Commandments, you see God's wonderful redemption of his people uh, out of Egypt, out of slavery. The law or the instruction of the Lord, it is both his commandments and also his actions. For his commandments are never to be found outside of the context of his actions and who he is. Do you want to live a legalistic Christian life? Just focus on do's and don'ts outside of the context of what God has done through Jesus. You want to live a joyless Christian life? Do you want to live a life where you're going to be burned out? Try to just follow these, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm not going to do that. That is not the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is God's character, God's actions, and yes, God's commands. That is where our true delight is. You see, we have been created for God as his people. How do we know who God is? We know who he is through Scripture. I have a couple uh, verses from Psalm 119 on the overhead here. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him, with their whole heart. There you have the desires. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Can you say that's true? For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Does that sound like somebody that's, that's living this life of like, well, I, I can do this, I can't do that, and got his hands in his pockets? Sometimes, sometimes uh, I know it's easy, especially as teenagers and in youth group and things, uh, to ask the question, well, can we do this? Does the Bible say we can do this? And it's automatically starting off with that negative perspective of, of what can't we do? And don't we approach the Christian life like that? The Christian life is one of, of true spiritual freedom. The heart of the Christian life, of, of God's commands, of God's word, is delight, love, seeking with our whole, my whole heart. You see, it's not that David, as he writes Psalm 119, it's not that he was ever blameless, that he, there was no sin exposed in his life, but that he had a heart that sought after God. A heart that even when he did sin, came back in repentance to him. You see, the path of the blessed is a path of the heart that delights in him. Again, chapter 2, verse 12. The heart that takes refuge in him. The Christian life now, you've heard this over and over again, but I don't think it sinks into our, our hearts and minds. It is, the Christian life is a life of relationship. 
relationship of God, your Abba, and yourself. And then it's being joined into relationship to his family and the local church. It is not some type of performance-based mentality. I mean, how good of a relationship would you have with someone who is simply gauging your performance? You may say, well, Pastor Adam, that was kind of my growing up. And, we, and, and the difficulty is many times we, we can't then transfer that to God. The Christian life stems from the heart. But then notice what it says at the end of verse 2, and on his law he meditates day and night. You see, the path of the blessed is a, involves a heart of delight, but also a heart of meditation. Did you know that all throughout Scripture, this idea of meditating and being fixed in God and His Word is consistent? You see, ultimately, what Psalm 1 is talking about, the blessed man is the ideal king of Israel. And then, as the king follows God, verse 6, the congregation of the righteous, the people follow God. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. This was descriptive of Israel's leaders. What did God tell Joshua in Joshua 1, verse 8? This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Descriptive of Joshua. This was also descriptive of Israel's kings. In Deuteronomy 17, talking about Israel's kings, it says, When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes. So this was to be his, the king's private copy that he, <clears throat> excuse me, he was to read and be in consistently. I asked you if you could keep your, your fingers in the book of Deuteronomy. If you want to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, this was also descriptive of individuals and families In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 6, Moses says, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, what God is commanding Moses and Moses is instructing the people is that God's Word is to continually be before you. It's to be in you, in your mind, in your heart, on your lips. That you're continually using opportunities to teach and instruct your children and to remind yourselves and your household of who God is, what He has done, and our call to follow Him. So I want to look at another category of person here. Can I ask you, is this descriptive of you? Insert your name and His. But Adam's delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Is, is that true of you? That word to meditate it literally means to mutter. As if you were, you were walking past someone and they're kind of muttering to themselves as they walk by. Why? Not because there needs to be a literal muttering, 
But this idea is so apropos because that which is continually in the heart comes out on the lips. You picture the Word of God, the acts of God flowing from the mind to the heart to every facet of our being. Almost as if you had kind of a a CT scan or whatever and you put the dye in and you can see that dye being traced throughout the human body. That's what God's Word is to be to us spiritually. Flowing through us. Flowing out of us. Folks, when we are engaging God's Word in the context of relationship with God, our hearts will be changed. Many times we simply open up God's Word and it's outside of the context of relationship with Him and we just say God's Word's dry, it's boring, okay, makes no sense, but I read a passage and we close it and we move on. No, you know what the missing ingredient for many of us is? Is that we are approaching God's Word outside of our relationship with Him. Is the prayer of your lips as you go to God's Word, is it, Lord, I am in in entire dependency upon you, upon the Holy Spirit? Would you bring truths to my mind and speak to my heart as I read Scripture? Help me to be sensitive to what you have for me. It's not that every day there may be huge fireworks that go out, but when you are reading God's Word in the context of relationship, seeds begin to be planted and those seeds begin to blossom. One other question, and most of our time is being spent here in these first two verses, uh, but one other question I want to ask you regarding verse 2 Because I think this is a danger to us in in Christianity and in our Christian lives. I want to ask you, I want to, just like I want to ask myself, are we delighting in our meditations of the Word of God? Or are we limiting ourselves by delighting in other people's meditations on the Word of God? And what I mean by that, are we coming to the table in the context of our relationship with the Lord, saying, Lord, I am digging into Your Word to be fed by You? Or are we going to outside parties and saying, let me meditate on their meditations? I mean, study, uh, study uh, books are great. Podcasts are great. Videos are great. But if they replace our digging into God's Word, that's not right at all. Those are meant to be supplements to our own time in God's Word. Our own digging in to say, Lord, Speak, for your servant is listening. So I want to remind us of this truth. That it is the Holy Spirit that we are relying upon. No pastor, no teacher, no devotional writer takes the place of God. And takes the place of His Word. So number one, If we are going to be the blessed person who follows God from the heart, that means our heart's allegiance is to Him and to His truth. But secondly, we also see the blessed man's security. Verse 3 shows us that the blessed man will be established. He is like a tree planted by streams of water 
that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The, the psalmist here describes the establishment of the one who is blessed as being like a planted tree. And not only is he planted, but he's planted by streams of water. Now this is particularly important. I'm not, a, um, I'm not one who likes to, to work with plants and work outside and all of that stuff. Uh, Rachel really enjoys it. But remember, this is a Middle Eastern setting. And you think of the idea of irrigation canals in the hot desert in the Middle East for a tree to survive in the desert, it must be planted by streams of water. Here you have a picture of a wide irrigation canal that has been dug for trees to be able to flourish. Imagine flourishing without the source of water. With, this, with these irrigation canals, the tree is able to flourish despite the harsh elements. What is the water? The water here is what verse 2 has just talked about. Delighting in the law of the Lord, letting His law meditate day and night in our hearts. It's flowing through us. So despite the harsh elements of life, the tree can still grow. Man, if we are not connected to our water line, the Word of God, in the context of dependent relationship, how are we to survive, let alone to yield fruit? Jeremiah picks up on this idea of Psalm 1, and he, he in very similar language, he describes the same thing, talks about uh, the nation here. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream, and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Man, the heat is going to come if it has not already come. How many of you would say, Pastor Adam, I'm going through a season of heat? How many? Don't be shy. I'll raise my hand with that. Going through a season of heat. What are, where are you going? Where are you clinging to combat all of the emotions and thoughts of fear and anxiety and the unknowns? Man, we better have God's Word streaming in us. It's our, it's our lifeline. He's like a tree planted, and what else does it say? He will bear fruit. This is the outworking of the Word of God. It also says fruit according or in its season. This is bearing fruit according to God's design. God has made an apple tree to bear what? Apples. A pear tree bears pears. We recently uh, planted this little... Um, apple tree in our yard and uh, you know I thought that by the end of the summer we'd have apples but then I read it takes a couple years what's the deal with that <laughs> I'm kidding I'm, I'm not that bad um, but wouldn't it be a shocker to see that thing start growing like figs or something like what in the world uh, e either chop it down or you know like Charlotte's Web take it to the market um, because it's the trees grow according to God's design. And you know, God has, has, has wired us. He's created us. The Bible says before we were even born, God has declared and he has, he has orchestrated the good works that we should walk in them. 
You know, some Christians are like Christians that you could be compared, that they're, that they're growing apples. God's gifted them in a certain way. There's other believers that could be compared to, uh, uh, to, to a pear tree where God has gifted them and they're growing a different type of fruit. And, and, and you could just keep making analogies to all the different fruit, but you know what the one denominate, common denominator is? How can the tree be healthy? It needs sun, it needs water, amongst a whole lot of other things. No matter how you're gifted, no matter who you are, no matter where you work, no matter where God has planted you, if you are straying from His Word in the context of relationship, you will not bear fruit. Then we see also, according to this tree, it says he will prosper. It says his leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Many people have the wrong idea of what it means to prosper. The health and wealth gospel says that if I follow God, I will have riches and all of these material blessings. The same word is used. We already looked at Joshua 1.8. At the end of Joshua 1.8, the same word for, that's used here in Psalm 1 for prosper is used at the end of Joshua 1.8, good success. Uh, he, God says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. But this is not just a blanket idea of good success. The context of our psalm has the idea of one, again, chapter 2, verse 12, who is taking refuge in Him, the context of relationship, and He is prospering. He's yielding fruit in its season the way that God has designed uh, uh, the blessed man to yield fruit. He is prospering in what God has designed and declared for that person's life. In other words, it is a prospering in the Word of the Lord and according to the Word of the Lord. This person is living out the life that God has intended for him to live out. He is fulfilling his calling. But then again, by way of contrast, as we continually contrast these two different people in these two different ways, we look at the two different ends. Verse 4, the wicked are not so. So everything you read in verse 3, put a big X there for the wicked. But what are they compared to? Are they yielding fruit? Are they established? They're planted by water? Their leaf is not withering? No, they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Throughout Scripture, chaff is used of God's judgment and the fleeting nature of the wicked. Even this word driven is a word that's used repeatedly in the Old Testament of God judging. He's scattering. He's destroying. The wicked will not stand. The wicked may have their their 70 years, so to speak, of, of a heyday. But that is fleeting compared to eternity. The rope, right? should have asked you for your rope. <laughs> Which of these two pictures would you rather be? And that leads us to our final point this morning, and we'll be done. Not simply the blessed man's allegiance or the blessed man's security, but the blessed man's reward. Verse 5 shows us that the blessed will endure the day of judgment. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. In Hebrew poetry, there's many times parallel statements that are made that either 
that either say kind of the same thing in a different way to emphasize a point, or they say one thing and then say the opposite to, to emphasize a point. Here we see one truth and then the opposite to emphasize that the blessed will receive reward. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. That word stand, they will not be established. They will not arise. They will not last. In fact, Psalm 24.3 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? And the psalm goes on to describe the person that will stand before God. And that person is not the wicked. However, God's people, verse 5 shows, will be established. Sinners will not stand in the judgment just as they will be driven away from the presence of God. Sinners will not stand either in the congregation of the righteous. They will not be counted among those who are found acceptable to God. So you see once again that we've gone to this single individual to verse 5, this multitude of people that are God's. They are His. You see, the blessed man's reward is that the blessed will endure the day of judgment, but not only that, looking all the way to the end, but we also look to the immediate present. The blessed are known by God. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Again, a contrast of two paths. The way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. What is the way of the wicked? It's what we saw described in verse 1. It's what Pastor Dennis is going to preach about in Psalm 2. This word knows is a beautiful truth that is presented to us. The Lord knows. You know what? That's one phrase of Scripture right there. Many times people say, I, I struggle memorizing Scripture. And, 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 and it is hard. Especially the older you get, it's harder. But I tell you what, sometimes our struggle memorizing Scripture is that we're not memorizing it long enough. But here's something really easy to memorize. The Lord knows. When you're going through a difficulty and all of these question marks are flooding your mind, the Lord knows. This is the idea of a continual relational knowledge. It's not a no that is a cold, distant no. I know Michael Jordan, but if I came up to him and ever asked him anything, he wouldn't give me the time of day. It's not like that. I know who he is with my head. No, we are talking about an intimate relational knowledge. Psalm 139, verses 1 and 2 says it this way. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Let me ask you, if God knows the very chair you're sitting in right now, and He knows um, when you stand up, when we sing uh, in a few moments, if he knows that like minutia of a detail, does he not know everything that you're going through? Every thought you have? He knows your thoughts. He discerns them from afar. Now, I don't know about, if, about you, but to me, that's a comfort. Even that God knows my worst thoughts is a comfort to me. Why? Because despite that, I've still been accepted in Christ. Amen? 
This is the type of deep knowledge. Why do we need to know for this, this reality that the Lord knows the way of the righteous? Because when you're following God, Jesus compares that to a narrow path. And that path is hard. And that path, we oftentimes feel forgotten. We feel forsaken. And as we are walking down this path of the blessed as believers in Jesus, we must continually be reminded the Lord knows. That is why we can't go to God and His Word apart from relationship. Because apart from relationship, it all seems like just cold facts. I like what uh, James Hamilton says. He says, Yahweh knows the way of the righteous because He is the one who has instructed them in the Torah or the law. He's the one who has caused them to delight in it and who has walked with them down it. It's the Lord's doing. It's not our doing. The very fact that we are on the path, that narrow path, it is not simply our decision or it's not simply something that we're doing in and of ourselves. It is something that God himself is working within us. As we close, I want to remind you of our key truth. The blessed man is the man who follows God from the heart. And we would fall far short of this psalm if we did not look at the entirety of Scripture and realize that the blessed man, the true blessed man, is not ourselves, it is Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who humbled Himself and came down to earth to live a life that refused to walk in the counsel of the wicked. Think of the desert where He's at His weakest, Jesus is at His weakest earthly point, and He's being tempted, tempted, bombarded by Satan, what does Jesus do? He clings to the Word on which He has meditated. And He refuses to give in to the lies and the allurements of Satan. And He responds with God's Word. It was Jesus in His deepest and His lowest points that refused to, to stand in the way of sinners. That while he was continually antagonized by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and by different people, he refused, as 1 Peter says, to respond in kind. He was like a sheep that was led to the slaughter. When we think of Jesus, he refused to sit in the seat of scoffers. Think of Jesus hanging on the cross as the scoffers mocked at him. You who healed others, come down and save yourself. What was his response? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus is the only one who has ever or could ever perfectly walk the path of the blessed. Do you know where we stand in this psalm? This psalm, talking about the blessed man, the blessed individual, was to be Israel's king and ultimately points us to Jesus, the true king. You know where we are? We're in verse 5. Because of what the blessed man has done, we are the congregation of the righteous. We have benefited from the work of Christ and we stand righteous. You know what our calling now is to do? Through the strength of the Holy Spirit, to walk the path of the blessed man who is Jesus. To not give in to the ungodly counsel of the wicked. To not stand and, and, and make our home with sinners. To not take part in the seat of scoffers. To be willing to walk the path that many times may feel forsaken, but we know there was only one that was truly forsaken, 
And that was Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are willing to endure the difficulty to walk the path of discipleship, to walk the path of Jesus, clinging to Jesus and his word, knowing that verse 6 is true. The Lord knows the way of the righteous.